Good morning and Christian greetings to each and every one of you. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord again this morning. <clears throat> Over the last several weeks, um, there have been several individuals that have indicated that they would uh, like for me to uh, preach some of the sermons that I preached out in Ohio. Um, and uh, that, you know, I will say that that's not what my intention was going into it. Uh, however, I want to be willing to do that if that's, if that's what is, is helpful in um, and so forth. So, as I had mentioned when I uh, preached uh, Leaders Have Limits, um, you know, I was thinking in terms of their church and what they had requested, and so it was not necessarily thinking about uh, situation or preaching them here. The first sermon I had preached out there in Ohio was actually the, an adaptation of the sermon I did last summer on Father's Day, actually, um, Act Like Men, and taken from the end of 1 Corinthians uh, 16. So these sermons were actually prepared for and given in the context of the congregation there in Ohio having an ordination for additional leadership. The ordination is actually scheduled for next week. And so some of what I shared was a little bit more of a personal reflection on my own journey. And, uh, you know, with in leadership and uh, probably talking about it a bit more than I typically prefer to do publicly, um, especially here. It's just not something that I tend to think about or, or uh, talk about publicly here. So I will attempt to share what the Lord um, has been laying on my heart and, uh, and sharing some of that. And I hope that you can hear and understand where this is coming from when I'm doing and when I am sharing this. And so while it's focused on church leadership specifically, these principles certainly apply to all disciples of Jesus, regardless of the role that God has called them to. So, I mean, literally, it applies to everyone in, to, in varying degrees in different ways, but it does uh, apply. And as I stated several weeks ago when I preached on leaders, that leaders do have limits, and they have to identify appropriate boundaries. At the same time, it is not unusual that some responsibilities and most crises don't wait for a convenient time to come. Uh, they just simply come when they do. And so while it's true that leaders do have limits, it's equally true that leaders are called to be servants. Um, and so this morning, I want us to consider together what it means um, to be a, uh, a servant and uh, that leaders have, that leaders are servants and uh, the projector is not coming on at the moment, but it will here pretty soon. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians 2 and I want to read from there. So while, while we have the head knowledge that of Jesus' humility and a servant heart, I myself have to frequently stop and think again to ponder anew the incredible sacrifice that Jesus 
made to bring about my salvation and to bring about each one of our salvation. And Philippians 2 is one of the best insights, although it's only a partial insight into that, that glorious reality. So I'd like to read the first 10 verses of Philippians 2 together as a starting point here this morning. So then if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not, out, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And uh, we'll stop there. So in this account is a, just a, a summary, but such a, a beautiful picture that Jesus, you know, about who Jesus was and what he gave up. He emptied himself, it talks about. But Jesus was God. He was co-equal eternal person of our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were working together in perfect unity through eternity past and through the Old Testament. Jesus was sinless, perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, present everywhere, holy in that state. But he emptied himself. He stripped himself, he voluntarily set aside most of those divine attributes in order to come to lowly planet Earth and make possible the plan of redemption for humanity, for the very people that had rejected him. So he voluntarily restricted himself to finite time and space. He allowed himself to be placed inside Mary's womb he was born a helpless baby, fully reliant on sinful human parents. I am sure he had boyhood friends who tempted him to lie, and cheat, and other things that boys do, be unkind. He worked alongside his earthly father and brothers. He went to school and uh, he learned the Jewish law, and if I understand correctly, likely he memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, because that's what Jewish, faithful Jewish boys did at that time, by the time he was 13 years old. All the while, he also remained divine. Jesus 
three years of earthly ministry directly touched the lives of thousands of people, and yet at the end of that he was wrongfully accused and convicted of a contrived crime that he was completely innocent of and condemned to die. He was cruelly tortured behind, beyond what most humans are capable of enduring, crucified, stripped naked, and made a public spectacle, and then by his divine power resurrected, defeating death and Satan. Jesus literally sacrificed everything to come and live among us. He became the same as nothing in order to do that. One way for us to think about what Jesus sacrificed to come to this earth, and I think it's even woefully inadequate to capture it, is to think of you and I becoming a mosquito to save the mosquito population. That gives you a little bit of a picture, maybe a flea or an ant, but that's a, that gives you a little bit of an imagery of what Jesus gave up to come and save humanity. But it's, it's even more than that, I believe. And he did that out of his incredible love for us. And it's in this context that Paul is instructing believers to develop that kind of a mindset, that way of thinking, that worldview that Jesus modeled so beautifully for all of us. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So the, for the first point this morning, or the first emphasis that I want to have, is that, G, that leaders serve. Disciples serve is another way of putting this. And so Jesus did set the perfect example for church leaders, for business leaders, for small group leaders, for fathers, youth leaders, all leaders in any context, as well as all disciples. And he modeled what it means to truly serve others. He modeled how to lead by serving. That is not something that we naturally do uh, or that we even necessarily understand, but because it runs counter to what our human inclinations are. The term servant leadership isn't new. Uh, in fact, it's been one of those terms that has almost become cliche and is overused and misused even in the business environment and so forth by many kinds of leaders over the last several decades especially. But I believe that true servant leadership is biblical leadership. It's Christ-centered leadership and it's distinctively Christian. I don't think you can have servant leadership apart from being a follower of Christ, not true servant leadership. It's serving others in the way that Christ served those who came in contact, that he came in contact with. And it's looking out for the good of others rather than seeing how I personally will benefit. The leadership of Jesus, the leadership that Jesus modeled during his earthly ministry was that of total service. And it's interesting that the most frequently used term in Scripture for spiritual leaders is servant. That's, that's what's typically used. Jesus' disciples had a lot in common with us, 
with humanity even from the 21st century, and that includes myself. They had a difficult time grasping or understanding the value of Jesus' approach to leadership. And rather, you know, and they wanted to benefit from that uh, and so forth. And multiple times throughout the Gospels, we read about Jesus intervening in disputes and arguments and discussions between the disciples and Jesus taking that opportunity to demonstrate once again and to teach what Christ-like service is really like. And he modeled that. And there's one such example in Mark, and I'd like for you to turn to Mark 9, and I want to read this and, and see what we can glean from this and, uh, and so forth. But there's multiple of these examples throughout the Gospels. Mark 9, verse 30. <clears throat> And they went from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever receives me, and whoever receives me, receives me not but him who sent me. Interesting little account here. Here Jesus and his disciples are walking from Galilee to Capernaum along a dusty road, and Jesus took that opportunity while they were walking to start explaining to them what was going to happen to him. They were going to arrest him, he was going to be killed, and then he was going to rise on the third day. It says they didn't understand what he was saying, but neither does there seem to be a single ounce of concern or empathy or even sadness at what Jesus was telling them. It, they just weren't, they were apparently not even comprehending. And you would think that they would have at least showed something, some emotion or shock or some form of grief or compassion for him. But for some reason, they just simply didn't get it. And neither did they have the courage or the nerve to ask for some clarification. But they were talking about other things. And Jesus heard what they were talking about, and I suspect quite adamantly, and because Jesus knew that they weren't discussing what he had just revealed to them about himself, so he asked them, what, are, what were you talking about? They became sheepish, embarrassed, and suddenly silent. Um, because Jesus knew exactly what they were arguing about, and that was about who was the greatest. Who was the best? Who was the most qualified? Who was the most deserving, the most significant, the most important, the most indispensable? You, they were just talking about who's, who's the best among them. And they were, obviously, comparing themselves among themselves. They were trying to figure out how they could elevate themselves above the 
other disciples, which were in their peer group, peer group to get the upper hand in the eyes of Jesus or um, among his, their peers. And so Jesus just patiently stopped, sat them down, and gently called them out on their attitudes. What's interesting is he didn't condemn them for wanting to be great. He revealed to them that the path to greatness is not ambition, it's not charisma, it's not tenacity, influence, power, expertise like they assumed, but he had a very wise response and said, yes, you are called to be great, but the path to greatness is not power and position, but the pathway to greatness is serving others. And so a heart, it's a heart of service that is selflessly giving of yourself to others. And the core characteristic of sin, I believe, pretty adamantly, is selfishness. It's when we're focused on ourselves. We're self-focused, we're self-absorbed, we're self-defensive, we're self-aggrandizing. And the disciples, like myself, and I would suspect all of us here today, still have remnants of that selfishness in our hearts. And therefore, we have a distorted view of what we really want, need, and what would really bring us lasting fulfillment. But true greatness comes when we're willing to put others ahead of ourselves. It's becoming a person who gives of himself rather than taking from others or even expecting anything from others. The Greek word for servant is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon, and it just means to serve to be an agent of, a waiter or an attendant. Think of a, a waiter at a restaurant. That's the type of, uh, that's what servant, a servant is or what um, that word means in a lot of ways. And Jesus just patiently explains to his disciples here that true greatness comes through being servants. While there might be a certain temporary or even temporal success and satisfaction that can come from clawing your way to the top, if you will, putting others down, it will never bring about lasting joy or fulfillment. So Jesus' approach is antithetical to our humanity. To serve requires a denial, a setting aside of our own desires and intentionally looking for ways to bless help, and serve those around us. Leaders in general, and church leaders specifically, are expected to do so in a variety of ways, and this is certainly not a comprehensive list, but you know, just to take a genuine interest in others, to look for ways to encourage and build up others, be hospitable strangers to visitors, to keep eye, your eyes open for where you can wash the feet of those around you, Serve by studying and teaching scripture, preaching, staying attuned to spiritual, emotional, and physical needs. Help solve problems or crises that develop. Bring fairness and resolution to interpersonal conflicts, listening and caring. And I can assure you that none of us can do these things perfectly. And yet we are called to serve, to give of ourselves, to do our best and to be ready to do so at all times and any time. 
So to lead is to serve, and leaders serve. And that requires focusing our priorities away from my own desires and my own wishes to meet needs in others. The second concept is that leaders sacrifice. <clears throat> and you know, you might say, well, what's the difference? But I think it's, uh, there is a difference. Leadership, particularly in a Christian environment of the home and the church, usually requires significantly more than just simply serving. But it also requires sacrifice. Sacrifice means a sacrificial laying down of oneself and one's desires and ambitions that go well beyond just serving. In the Old Testament, one, some of the sacrifices to God were to be the first fruits of crops or even the best of the livestock. Now, there's little doubt that that expectation of the first fruits and the best of the livestock caused a certain level of consternation among young men who were trying to get their families established financially and so forth and to provide for them. So this nearly perfect heifer calf or lamb is born, a great opportunity to increase the value of their herd or their flock. Yet that is the very one that they realize needs to be given up, to be sacrificed, surrendered, if they're going to be obedient to God. That's what sacrifice is. And so today, the Old Testament sacrificial system is obsolete, thanks to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this call to sacrifice first fruits is manifest in many other ways. And for leaders, many of these sacrifices are largely unseen and unknown by others. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are no longer to live for ourselves. That's sacrifice. We're not living for ourselves. Leaders sacrifice because they love Christ, because they love the church, and they love people, both those in the church and beyond. Fathers sacrifice because they love Christ, their wife, and their children, and they will sacrifice for that. For most church leaders, this call to sacrifice requires the giving up of some and perhaps most of their personal ambitions. With a bivocational model where, as a pastor, does not receive financial compensation for the work in the church, the amount of sacrifice, I believe, required increases significantly. Time invested in the work of the church is time that cannot be used to earn financially. Uh, or for other pursuits that they're interested in. And while significant sacrifice is required, there's 
there are certainly ways that members um, can also make that worth it by looking for ways to support and encourage leaders regularly and in meaningful ways. I, I have to say that within the last several weeks, I received a handwritten note of encouragement. And it was so meaningfully encouraging to me. Um, just a, a simple gesture like that was, was meaningful. Don't wait till Pastor Appreciation Month in October to express appreciation. Um, find practical ways to help with things that they might not have time to get done due to the time they invest in the church. Encourage or enable a regular Sabbath rest. And these sacrifices, even though I mentioned them, they don't call for sympathy. That's not what I am I'm saying. Because by sacrificing in this way for myself, my love for the church has been deepened in ways that would have never happened otherwise. Another just practical aspect of this, and, and I want you to hear me. They, these are illustrations. I'm not for understanding, not for, uh, yeah, I hope you can hear of that. So I've been ordained in church leadership for more than 24 years. The first 14 years was, it was just Simon and I, so I was preaching every other Sunday. And uh, the last 10 years, there's been three of us to share in that responsibility with me being a lead pastor in that. Darren was two and a half years old when I was ordained. Brandon was eight months old. Given my Monday to Friday office professional jobs that I had, my sermon prep had to happen evenings or Saturdays, and usually it ended up both. And so in just in looking back over the last 24 years, I have given up, sacrificed between four and 500 Saturdays for the church. And I'm glad I've been able to do that, but that's Saturdays that I was unable to spend pursuing the things that I would have had interest in pursuing, other things, hobbies, occasional fun activities like going on hikes or biking or picnics and things like that with the family. And that was true for my family from infants into adulthood. That's sacrifice. It is. But what we invest in, what we sacrifice for, what, where we spend our time, those are then the very things that become most important to us, too. And I don't want to diminish from that. And the church truly is that important. I do not regret that at all. Luke 14, 26 says that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So this is a call for all disciples to be able, willing to sacrifice those things most dear to us for the good of following Christ. As you know, a pastor is on call 24-7. That means any time, day or night, a call may come from somebody with a critical need. And I can assure you these calls don't usually come at the most convenient times. And there's been times over the last 24 years when I have been completely exhausted emotionally, only to receive a call late at night or even in the middle of the night to go and spend with a, somebody in their home or in the emergency room for the rest of the night. 
supporting them, praying with them, encouraging them, and simply being there. I will tell you, God's grace has always been sufficient, but it has certainly not been, always been easy. Several years ago, after more than a year of careful planning, had worked out all the details necessary to be able to attend winter term at Faith Builders for two weeks, a dream that I had for many years. On Monday of the second week, received a call about an urgent crisis here at home. And so we packed up and headed home and were not even able to complete those two weeks of refreshment that I thought I so desperately needed and wanted. And, but it just didn't happen. And so I share these as illustrations. They're not negative. I'm not saying that in a negative way, but because I'm grateful that I've been able to sacrificially serve you and this church in this way. But in the moment, there's been times when it has been very difficult, and God has given the grace through those times. I also want to acknowledge that I know that many of you have your own stories to tell of sacrifices that you have made for the church and for others. And I don't want to diminish any of that and what each one of you brings and gives and sacrifices. For that, I, I thank you. <clears throat> Leadership, discipleship, requires ongoing sacrifice. And sacrifice requires more than just being servants. It's called to give up sacrificially with no expectation of getting anything in return. It's selflessly giving of ourselves, our time, our resources to help and encourage others. Another important thing is just to remember and uh, is that s sacrificial service doesn't mean that we end up compromising. Just because we sacrifice ourselves does not mean we compromise on our uh, or sacrifice biblical principles or giving in to the pressure of doing something that we believe would not only be unhealthy uh, but unwise for either the congregation or an individual. And today there's so much cultural pressure to adapt in order not to be offensive in certain segments of people. To adapt is not sacrifice. That's not what that means. It, that's a compromise of truth. Sacrifice requires that we give the best of our time, our energy, and personal ambitions and financial opportunities to serve those around us. And it will require significant sacrifice. The third aspect of this is that leaders are called to suffer. David, Paul David Tripp, in his book, Lead, makes this statement. There is simply no such thing as a call to ministry leadership that isn't also a call to a life of servanthood. And there is no such thing as a call to servanthood that isn't a call to suffer. And we've been studying Acts in our Sunday school lesson and I was struck with several verses in some of the early chapters um, that there was, I would say, an acceptance 
of a reality and maybe even an assumption that suffering was going to be a part of being a Christian. Acts 5.41, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for that name. And then Paul, um, what well, was it, uh, God's call on Paul through Ananias, I uh, said that for I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. These early Christians expected suffering, and they considered it a badge of honor that they could suffer. And for them, the suffering was often in a physical nature. It was beating or prison or something of that nature. There was a physical element to it. And that just doesn't seem right. I, th I would say for all of us, that does not seem right. It does not seem fair. And you know what? By its very definition, suffering is never deserved. Punishment and discipline are deserved. Suffering is not something that we deserve. Suffering is unjust, it's unfair, and it's unwarranted. Sacrifice is a voluntary act, something that we choose to do out of our love for, and care for Christ and our brothers and sisters. Suffering is involuntary. It is brought on us apart from our choosing. The New Testament teaches that suffering is a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and all the more to a person in leadership. Mark chapter 10, I'd like to read an account there. Uh, another encounter with Jesus and the disciples. <clears throat> Mark 10, 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Listen to that. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called to them and called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not, but it, it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And for the for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As I read this, the audacity of James and John coming to Jesus in this account is probably pretty appalling to all of us, and yet it really does reveal their hearts. And then Jesus asked them, are you willing to suffer with me? 
not in those words, but drink the cup and so forth. Uh, and Jesus asked, they we're going to be willing to suffer with him. And their immediate response was yes, but they had no idea what that entailed. The other 10 disciples got indignant about this, likely because they felt like they deserved the position um, more than what James and John did. But Jesus makes it clear again that to be great requires becoming a servant and to be first means to be the slave of all or the highest degree of a servant. But then he says he didn't come to be served because to see what kind of a benefit he could derive for himself out of this, but rather he came with the intent of sacrificially giving to others, and that includes his very life. And that level of give, serving goes way beyond even the giving of first fruits. It's a surrender of everything, including one's own life. And Jesus is calling his disciples, as well as each one of us, to be willing to suffer, to anticipate suffering, and may I dare even say appreciate suffering as a way of identifying with what Jesus did for us in some small way. Now, for us today, from church leaders and so forth, and probably even disciples that generally in the U.S., followers of Christ, suffering does not come in the form of physical um, pain or things like they would have faced in the early church, but I think it's generally more on the emotional side. There's false accusations, unfair obligations, there's lies and gossip, there's harsh harsh criticism and attacks. There's abandonment, rejection, misguided assumptions. It's those types of things that are the types of suffering that leaders in particular often deal with and, and uh, cope with uh, today. When or if there is any form of persecution church leaders are generally the first that are targeted in order to try to stop it. And I'll be the first to admit that there are times when unwarranted suffering as a leader has triggered a complaining attitude in my heart. But at such times, am I not really telling Jesus that I deserve relief from my unjust suffering because it must be worse than what he endured? And we know that that's not true, but then in essence, that's kind of what we're, we're saying. And we don't deserve this. Well, Christ didn't deserve what he suffered either. What I found amazing in studying this aspect of this is there's several dozen verses in the New Testament speaking of suffering for Christ. And I would encourage you to write down some of these references and go back and look at these. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, but there's a number of verses that, that really speak to suffering and are convicting to me. <clears throat> First one in Matthew 10.22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, we're not going to be a pop, the most popular person around. This is perhaps the most convicting of the verses that I have for myself. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I am children then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's where I usually stop when I read this. It continues, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Romans 8.36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 1 Peter 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that, some, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. For it is a gracious thing. When mindful to God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit it is if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The idea of suffering unjustly. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Second Timothy, written to a pastor, for I was for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what he has entrusted me. And then 2 Timothy 2, the next chapter, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There's many more. Suffering is not fair, but it is an honor to do so for our master and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be a church leader, a disciple of Jesus, is a call to suffer for him and to embrace injustice as a way of identifying with Jesus on the cross. So disciples of Jesus are called to serve Jesus Christ and others, to sacrifice for Jesus Christ and others, to suffer for Jesus Christ and others with what kind of an attitude? 
And this is the part that probably makes all of this all the harder, if you will. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We are to do these things willingly, eagerly, with an attitude of we get to. We're honored to do so. There's no have to about it. We're not doing it out of obligation. The call to joyful servitude and willing suffering is a form of God's grace. It's God's call for me to deny myself. God is actually freeing me from the bondage of myself from the self-focus and self-fulfillment that's never going to lead to any happiness or contentment or truly a satisfied heart. This has certainly been a journey for me. Uh, I have not always served, sacrificed, or suffered as I should have, and I certainly have not done so willingly. Uh, I will be the first to admit. But I am learning, and today I, want, I, I do want to do so willingly, uh, but I still fail at times. I'd like to just read a quote uh, as we wrap up here from uh, the book lead that I had referenced um, earlier from Paul David Tripp. Church life was not designed to be comfortable. What is the church? It's a chosen gathering of unfinished people still grappling with the selfishness of sin and the seduction of temptation living in a fallen world where there is deception and dysfunction all around. There is nothing comfortable or easy in this plan. The church is intended to be messy and chaotic because the mess is intended to yank us out of our self-sufficiency and self-obsession to become people who really do love God and our neighbors. God puts broken people next to broken people, including leaders, not so they would be comfortable with one another, but so that they would function as agents of transformation in the lives of one another. That statement, that paragraph, has just been so convicting. You know, it's not easy. It's not designed to be easy, but the result, it, it's about, it's a process. It's a transformational process. None of this is natural or easy. I'm talking about the serving, the sacrificing, the suffering, and or to do so willingly or eagerly. And it's certainly not possible in our own strength. It is possible only through the empowering of the Holy Spirit and our submission to him. But it's God's call, especially to leaders, but to disciples in general as well. And God's blessings will follow, probably not tangibly, but spiritually, there will be blessings and rewards. So my challenge in closing here is let's be disciples, let's be leaders who serve willingly, who sacrifice willingly, who suffer willingly, all for the sake of Jesus Christ, who did so much more for us.